let's get to it. If you have a Bible or if you have some kind of device for the Bible app, why don't you grab those things. Let's go to Mark 8 together. Mark 8. We are in week 25 of our series on the book of Mark. And again, we're in Mark 8 again today. Uh, Several years ago, I led a group of high schoolers on a spring break mission trip to Peru. And the second day we were there, I got a really bad eye infection in my left eye. I would wake up every morning, my eye would be crusted over, completely swollen shut. And when I finally got it open, it looked like someone was holding a piece of wax paper over it. And so about midway through the trip, one of our translators offered to take me to the eye doctor in this very remote third world village we were working in. Well, by that point, I was in so much pain that I just agreed to go. You know, let's do it, what I have to lose. So he takes me, and we walk down this long hallway, and we go behind this curtain, and we sit in this dark room, and the eye doctor finally comes in. And as he's looking at my eye, he's speaking to the the translator in Spanish, of course, and I don't speak Spanish, and so I'm sitting there listening, completely oblivious to what they're talking about, until the translator finally looks at me, and he says, he wants to give you a shot. And so naturally, I ask, where is that shot going? (laughs) And he says back to me, in the eyeball. Yeah, that's how I felt too. So I said back to the translator, how do you say heck no in Spanish? Like, (laughs) translate that for me. Tell him I'm not getting a shot in the eyeball. I'm getting out of his office right now. So we left. Well, later that night, our group was together And I'm sharing with them that this eye doctor had attempted to violate my eye with a needle. It was no help. And someone in the group spoke up and said, hey, James, I I just found some antibiotic eye drops in my luggage that I didn't know I had. And if you want them, you, you can have them. Yes, please, go get them right now, right? And so someone else then spoke up in the group and said, James, I think we need to get everyone to lay hands on you and to pray that God would restore and heal your eye. And so they did. And still to this day, I don't know if it was the eye drops or the prayer. Like, I'm going to go with the prayer just to be safe. But all I know is that within uh, 48 hours, my eye was completely restored and I could see again. Now, that experience taught me a valuable lesson about seeing. And it's this. Seeing is great. But greater than seeing is seeing clearly. Are you with me? You know, it's great to be able to see, isn't it? But if all you can do is see and you can't see clearly, the very purpose of seeing is somewhat defeated. Listen, that's the truth that we're going to focus in on today. In our passage, we find the story of Jesus healing a blind man. But unlike his other healing miracles, this healing didn't happen immediately. It was actually gradual. It took part in two stages. In stage one, this man went from not seeing to seeing. And in stage two, he went from seeing to seeing clearly. Amazing, amazing story. But the story is about more than a man who couldn't see, now seeing clearly. It also symbolizes in many ways the spiritual vision of the disciples. You know this if you've been here over the last several weeks, but up until this point in the book of Mark, the disciples of Jesus, they'd heard him teach over and over again. They'd seen his miracles They had even helped out in some of the miraculous things that happened, yet they failed to see Jesus for who he was. Well, the great news is, all that's going to change today. In our passage, the disciples finally start to see Jesus, but the problem is this. Even after they saw him, they still didn't see him clearly. And the reality is, if we're not careful, 
the same can be true in our lives as followers of Jesus today. And so my prayer is this. I'm praying that God, by his word and through his spirit, would help all of us, not just to see Jesus, but to see him clearly. So with that said, let's dive in, get to work, all right? Uh, Mark 8, starting in verse 22, here's what it says. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his uh, hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. So we'll stop there and talk. All right, Mark tells us that Jesus and his disciples come into this town called Bethsaida. This was a town where Jesus did many of his miracles, yet in large part, many of the people living there rejected him. But despite majority rejection, what we just read was this, that some people, some nameless group of people decided to bring to Jesus this blind man and they begged him to touch him. Now, when I read that this past week, two questions immediately came to mind as I thought about us. And the questions were these, who are we bringing to Jesus and who are we begging Jesus to restore and redeem? Now, I don't know how you feel when you look at these, but I believe these are significant questions. Because the reality is, every single one of us in the room today who knows Jesus also know other people who are spiritually blinded and who need to be restored and redeemed. Am I right? Right. What they need is for someone, namely you, to bring them to Jesus because they lack the spiritual vision necessary to get to Jesus on their own. The question is, are you bringing them? And in addition to bringing them, are you begging Jesus to do what only he can do in their lives? Listen, if the answer is no, I think you have to slow down long enough to ask that why question. Why am I not bringing? Why am I not begging? And listen, I know we could all, if we wanted to, offer those really easy surface level answers. Well, James, life is crazy right now, and my schedule's busy, and my kids are all over the place, and work's insane, right? But here's the reality. Here's what I think. I think the answer, the real answer, goes deeper than those answers. Uh, I think the answer in large part has to do with how we see Jesus. I mean, think about it like this. Uh, If someone in your life that you love had terminal cancer, your spouse, your kid, your best friend, and someone handed you the name, address, and phone number of the one person in the world who had the cure for the type of cancer your loved one was suffering from, Would you ever stop and think to yourself, oh, I'd love to get them to that person, but, you know, work's crazy. My schedule's packed. I'm just so busy. The kids have ball practice and dance practice this week. I don't know if I have the time to make this happen. No, you'd never think that. Instead, what would you do? You'd do everything in your power to get your loved one to that person who could help, and then you would beg them to help. Am I right? Yes. Yes. So think about this. If we see Jesus clearly, shouldn't the same be true for us? I mean, process it with me, if you will. Doesn't the Bible teach that Jesus and Jesus alone is the Savior of the world? It teaches that he and he alone holds the cure for sin and death. That Jesus is the only one powerful enough to deliver people from suffering and spiritual bondage, both in this life and in the next. So the question is, do we see him that way? 
And if we say we do, the next question we have to ask is this. Is what I see in Jesus simply theoretical or theological for me? Or is what I see in him shaping my life in such practical ways that I'm doing everything I can to bring people to him that need to be brought? And I pray that we're those people. Those people that don't just talk about the importance of pursuing and bringing people far from God to Jesus for the help they need. But I pray we're people who actually do it. You see, because here's the truth. Uh, We can show up to church all we want. And we can go to our small groups all we want. And we can hang out in our Bible studies all we want. And we can get smarter along the way, right? We can be the smartest person in the room and know everything there is to know about what we should do concerning the mission of Jesus. But if we never actually do it, we're missing out on what it means to truly follow him. Are you with me? You see, following Jesus means that we do what some people did in this story. And we bring people who are far from God to Jesus. And we beg him in faith to restore and redeem. I love how Jesus responds to this group. They bring this blind man. Uh, Jesus, we're begging you to help. Would you change his situation? And Mark says that Jesus leads this man out of the village. Jesus, can you help? I think so. Let's get out of here. Why does he do that? Why does he take this man out of the village? Well, some Bible scholars believe that it was due to Bethsaida's rejection. That Jesus leading him out of this village was a sign against the people there of judgment. I'm not doing any more miracles in this God-forsaken place, right? Uh, Personally, I think that's a bit of a stretch. And I tend to believe what other scholars believe, and it's this. That Jesus leading him out was more a sign of his care and compassion than it was his judgment. And I'll make my case, all right, in case you don't believe me. Here we go. Um, Mark 7, if you were here a few weeks ago, you might remember the story we covered in which Jesus healed a deaf and mute man. Do you remember this? And, and what was the first thing Jesus did for that guy? Something very similar to what we just saw. He actually took that man away from the crowds. That man had probably been made a spectacle of his entire life, and Jesus refused to do it to him. And so he takes him away from the crowds, and when it's just him and Jesus... He starts to communicate with this guy in nonverbal ways. It's almost like he's using sign language. He puts his fingers in his ears, and he touches the guy's tongue, and he's communicating that moment, what he's getting ready to do. And then he looks to heaven so that this man would know where his power was coming from. And then Jesus, he sighs. He sighs over the physical brokenness in that man's life due to sin. And as we learned in that message, it's in all those small details that we see the incredible goodness, care, and compassion of Jesus Christ. And I would argue that the same is true here in this Mark 8 story. Like, what's the first thing Jesus does before he takes the guy out? Look at the passage. What does he do? He takes the man by the hand, right? Now, you and I all know that you don't just hold hands with anybody. Yes? Like, you don't walk up to the random stranger at the mall and just grab their hand. That's the kind of stuff that gets you slapped or gets the police called. We don't do it. Why? Because holding hands with someone is an intimate thing. It's a sign of of, uh, affection. In some cultures, it's a sign of friendship. And so by taking this man's hand, Jesus was basically saying to him, you matter to me. I care about you, and I care about what you're going through. And while holding his hand, he personally leads him out of the village as not to turn his healing into a show. And then Jesus does something next that's really weird and really gross. And I always want to be the guy that's honest enough to say from the platform like this, 
uh, when I don't know things, I'm going to say, I don't know why Jesus did this. When I studied this passage this past week, I could not find any legitimate explanation for why Jesus does what we're about to see him do when we get to heaven. We can all ask him about it. But I'm just telling you, I don't know why he did it. Here's what he does. He spits on the guy's eyes. Let me just make sure you're getting this. Jesus just spit in a blind guy's face, okay? It almost seems cruel, doesn't it? I mean, can you imagine being him? There you are. You know it's just you and this other stranger that just grabbed your hand and took you away from where you were, and you're standing there, and all of a sudden you feel something wet on your face. It's like, bro, did you just spit on me? Like, who does that? Apparently Jesus does it. He spits on this guy's eyes, and then he lays his hands on him, and I'm assuming he touched his eyes there, and then Jesus does something he doesn't do in any other healing miracle. He asks this man, do you see anything? And we start to see the gradual nature of his healing in his answer. He says back to Jesus, I can see, but I can't see clearly. I see what look like men, but they also look like trees walking around. His answer, by the way, lets us know that he wasn't born blind. Like this is a guy who knew what people and knew what trees looked like. So uh, it's likely that he probably had some kind of accident or suffered from some type of disease that, that caused him to lose his eyesight. Jesus, I, I see, but I can't see clearly. And so Jesus, Mark says, touches the man again. And this time he goes from seeing to seeing clearly. I love what Mark says. He opened his eyes. When translated literally, that means that this guy stared with eyes wide open. A few years back, I had LASIK eye surgery. Anybody ever done this? It was like a miracle. Um, it was absolutely amazing. Horrible vision, horrible eyesight. Uh, had LASIK eye surgery. And the next day, I drove myself to my follow-up appointment. And the whole time I was in the car, I was staring with eyes wide open, right? I saw the world like I had never seen it before. That's the picture we see in the passage. This man's sight had been completely restored and for the first time in a long time, he's seeing the world in HD. Now, I hope you agree with this. That's an incredible story, isn't it? It's amazing to see Jesus change people's lives in that way. And as a church, we believe Jesus can still do that same stuff today. Incredible, incredible story. But as I said at the beginning of the message, this story is about more than a blind man regaining his eyesight. It's also a story that illustrates and symbolizes in many ways the spiritual vision of the disciples. You see, similar to this man in stage one of his healing, the disciples, even after they saw Jesus, they still didn't see him clearly. And I'll show you what I mean. Go back with me. Uh, verse 27 says this, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So Mark tells us here that Jesus and his disciples leave Bethsaida, and they travel directly north about 25 miles on foot. And as they're walking, Jesus decides to ask, hey, fellas, as you're out there meeting people and talking with people, what are you hearing about me? Who are other people saying that I am? Well, the disciples respond, and they give Jesus the same answer that Mark recorded back in chapter 6. All right, we've talked about this before in the series. 
but he said, or they say to Jesus, uh, some people are saying you're John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. Other people are saying you're Elijah, one of two men in the Bible who went to heaven without dying. Other people are saying you're like one of the Old Testament prophets. Now, as I read that, I couldn't help but think to myself, wow, things aren't too different in the world we live in today, right? Here's the reality. People aren't saying the same thing in our world that they said about Jesus in his day, but people still say all kinds of differing things about Jesus. Yes? Listen, if you don't believe me, just like post on Facebook this afternoon and ask all your Facebook friends, hey, what do all you think about Jesus? And here's what I guarantee. You will get back many, many different opinions about Jesus. But please hear me. This matters so much. Don't tune me out. Please hear me. Look. What matters most is not what other people have to say about him. What matters most is what you say. What matters most is not what other people say about him. What matters most is what you say. And that truth is reflected in Jesus' second question to the disciples. He said, that's great. Look, if everybody out there is saying those things about me, fine, so be it. But what about you? The 12 of you who are following me, doing ministry with me, who do you say that I am? Before we talk about their response, I want to say this because I need us to hear this. There is not a more important question that you and I have to answer in life outside of that one. Who do we say that Jesus is? As Pastor Warren Wearsby once said, your confession of Jesus is a matter of life or death. Why life or death? Because according to Jesus, there is no salvation outside of him. This is not James making this stuff up. This is Jesus declaring about himself that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to God the Father and no one comes into eternal life apart from him. And again, you have to wrestle with that. You have to decide whether or not to believe and confess that. Right? Will you be that person who falls in line with popular culture or, or buys into what other religions and belief systems have to say? Will you develop all your own ideas and opinions about Jesus, or will you be someone that simply agrees with Jesus in regards to what he says about himself? All of us have to make that decision at some point. All of us. The disciples had to make that decision at this point. And the great news is, they answered correctly, right decision. All right, guys, who do you say that I am? Well, Peter, in typical Peter fashion, he speaks up before anybody else can open their mouths, right? And he says to Jesus, speaking not just for himself, but on behalf of the entire group, you are the Christ. You're the Christ. Now, look up here for just a minute. You know that word Christ isn't Jesus' last name, yes? Jesus' first name, last name, Christ. That's not how he feels out like credit applications. Okay, not (laughs) Jesus' last name. Uh, That word Christ is translated from the Greek word Christos, which comes from the Hebrew word Messiah. And in the Old Testament, that word was used to refer to people who were anointed with oil, chosen by God, and set apart to his service. These were people, namely, that served as prophets, priests, and kings. Well, over time, that word morphed into somewhat of a title for the promised Savior God would one day send into the world. So the Jewish people, when they heard Messiah, they didn't think any longer about an anointed one. They thought about the anointed one, the Savior, the Christ God would send. And so here's Peter standing before Jesus saying, we believe you're him. 
We believe that you're the one God's been saying he would send into the world. You're the Messiah. You are the Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've been here over the course of this series, I think like it's almost time for us to throw a little bit of a party, right? Does it feel that way to you? It's like, yes, they're finally getting it. Here we are, eight chapters into the book, 25 weeks into the series, and the disciples are finally beginning to see Jesus. It's incredible, isn't it? But what's more incredible is the fact that Jesus doesn't seem that excited. In verse 30, he says back to his guys, basically, uh, hey, fellas, appreciate your answer. Looks like you're finally starting to see me, uh, but here's what I need you to do. Don't tell anybody. What's that about? They're just seeing him for the first time, but don't tell anybody. Jesus, why don't you want us to tell people? Well, part of that had to do with what we've talked about already in the series, that Jesus had this desire and this plan to reveal himself to the world on his own terms, and he didn't want anybody else messing up that revelation for him. Ultimately, his revelation would come through what? The cross and the resurrection. But there was another reason Jesus said to his guys, keep your mouth shut and don't tell anyone. And it's the reason we've been touching on the whole entire message. It's this. Even though the disciples saw him, they still didn't see him what? They still didn't see him clearly. Look back at the passage and I'll show you. Verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And Jesus said this plainly with boldness, with confidence, with fearlessness. And Peter took him aside. And and what did Peter do? He said to Jesus, oh, praise the Lord. This is awesome news. We're so grateful to hear this. So glad we signed up to follow you. That's not what Peter does, right? Peter takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter. And so we have an old-fashioned rebuke battle going down right here in the text. He rebukes Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So let's unpack that if we can, all right? So Jesus, for the first time in the book of Mark, predicts his death and resurrection. The disciples confess and Jesus begins to teach them, here's what's coming for me. And he begins his prediction by using this title for himself. You should underline it in your Bible if you write in your Bible, Son of Man. This was by far Jesus' favorite self-designated title. He actually uses it 81 times in the Gospels. And it's a title that comes directly out of the Old Testament. The most significant Old Testament passage where it's found is Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. In that chapter, Daniel, this incredible Old Testament prophet, he has this vision Uh, This vision of Jesus, some five to six hundred years before Jesus ever shows up on the earth, and he describes what he sees. I want to read it for you. Here's what it says. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like, here it is, a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages, all colors, all ethnicities, all tribes should what? Should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So in calling himself the son of man, Jesus is basically in this moment confirming what the disciples just saw. 
He's saying to them, you guys are spot on. This is exactly who I am. I'm the Messiah. I'm the anointed one. I'm the son of man that Daniel spoke of in the Old Testament scriptures. All dominion is mine. All glory is mine. And I am here to establish a kingdom to which there will be no end. But then he says this. But guys, you have to know, before all that becomes reality, I, the son of man, must suffer. That word must there implies divine necessity. Guys, I must suffer because God has deemed it necessary. I must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Those three groups of people, by the way, made up the Jewish high court of Jesus' day. The same high court that would later falsely accuse him, convict him, put him to death. I must be killed, but then on the third day, I will rise to life again. Now look, if you know Jesus in the room, that prediction, I hope, sounds really familiar and really hopeful to you, right? That Jesus 2,000 years ago was rejected by the religious leaders of his day, which then led to his death on the cross, a death he died in our place for our sins so that we could be loved and accepted by God, and then three days later proved that the grave could not hold him when he rose from the dead to conquer sin, death, and hell forever on our behalf. There is no greater news than that news, yes? No greater news on the planet. Yes? All right. I'm glad you guys are tracking with me here. But listen, in this moment, to the disciples, it wasn't great news at all. In fact, to them, it sounded like really, really bad news because it blew up everything that they believed. You see, as Jesus sat in front of them and predicted that he would suffer and die, it had major implications for these guys, both on a theological and practical level. On the theological side, everything they hoped that would be true of the Messiah was completely laid to waste. You see, the popular view of their day was this, that the Messiah would come as this strong, victorious, military-type leader, and he would achieve victory through uh, conquest, crushing their enemies, right? He would establish his kingdom, their enemies would be vanquished forever, and that they would live happily ever after, right? And here's the deal. When Jesus comes again for the second time, that will be true. But when he came for the first time, nothing could have been further from the truth, right? And so Jesus is basically saying, look, you guys are starting to see me, um, but you don't see me clearly just yet. Because that's not the type of leader I came to be. And that's not how I plan on achieving victory. I came to lead by serving, and I plan to conquer through suffering. On the practical side... It blew up everything the disciples would uh, hope would be true for them personally, right? I mean, beforehand, they were probably thinking, Jesus is the guy, and we're rolling with him. We're his entourage. He's about to set up his throne and his kingdom, and all these people who hate us are going to be wiped out, and we're going to rule, and we're going to reign. His glory and his power will belong to us as well. And then Jesus talks about all this suffering stuff, and they start connecting the dots. And they're going, all right, if, if he's going to suffer and we're following him, What's that mean for us? It probably means we're going to suffer too. Look, this is why Peter did what he did. And I don't want us to beat up on the guy too badly in this moment because here's the reality. If you've ever had truth blow up your theological framework or your worldview, you know how frustrating it can be, right? Truth sets people free, 
but at first it can be kind of annoying. And this is exactly what Peter experienced, the rest of the disciples experienced. They heard the truth, and I just imagine Peter, he's pacing nervously, right? And he looks at Jesus, and he goes, can I talk to you for a minute? Just, just me and you, right over here in the corner. I need to have a conversation with you. And so he pulls Jesus aside, and he rebukes him. That word rebuke is the same word used in Mark when Jesus rebuked demons. And so Peter went after him. Jesus, have you lost your mind? What do you mean, yeah, you're him, but you're going to suffer and die? Did you ever think about telling us all that stuff before we signed up to follow you? Like, no way we're letting this happen. And I just imagine Jesus, right, he's trying to be patient, and he's kind of just nodding along. Oh, Peter, Peter, I hear you. Yeah, but I, I understand. And he lets Peter finish. And then Jesus turns, and he looks at the rest of his disciples. And he knows from the expression on their faces that all those dudes agree with this dude. And so he stops looking at them, and he rebukes Peter. And he says to Peter, here's the famous line that many of us know, and maybe we've even used this of other people. I don't know, but he says, get behind me, Satan. Just FYI, it's never a good thing when Jesus calls you Satan, okay? Like ever. Get behind me, Satan. The only time Jesus ever says that is when somebody's done something horribly wrong or offensive, right? Which these guys did. He says to Peter, and he points out for the rest of the disciples, in this moment... Your minds are not set on the things of God, but on the things of man. One of our pastors, Matt Moody, this morning shared this with me out of a book he's been reading. He was basically saying to Peter, Peter, what you're trying to do right now is you're trying to give me the crown before I ever go to the cross. In other words, he was saying to his guys, all you're thinking about in this moment is how you can leverage me and use me for your own glory instead of following me into hardship that I might be glorified and the rest of the world might be saved. Listen, as we close, I'll say this and then we'll be done. That is yet another clear sign that while you might see Jesus, you don't see him clearly. You're that person in the room, hear me, that wants glory without suffering. Are you tracking here? Like, you're that person who wants to leverage and use Jesus for all the good things you want while avoiding all the bad things you don't want. Uh, Jesus, I want favor, and I want blessing, and I want all your good gifts, but what I don't want is to suffer like you suffered. Jesus, I want all the good stuff, but I don't want any of the bad stuff. I don't want to share in your sufferings like that. And if you make me share in your sufferings like, like you've suffered, instead of asking you how you might want to use my suffering for your glory and my good, I'm just going to rebuke you for it. Look, there's so much more I could say on that right now, but I'm going to hold off. Because in the coming weeks, starting next week, you need to be back, by the way, we're going to start talking about the implications of what it means to follow a suffering Savior. Because in essence, that's the rest of the book of Mark. You see, we came to a major dividing point in the book today. It's around this time that Jesus who we have seen thus far as king, sets his face toward Jerusalem and he begins that march toward the cross, the cross where he would lay his life down for us. And as he's walking toward the cross, he's teaching his disciples and, and teaching us along the way. Listen, following me isn't always gonna be comfortable and it's not always gonna be, it's not always gonna be easy, but it will always be worth it. 
And so you keep coming back to hear what Jesus has to say. For now, here's all we're going to do. I'm going to invite us into a time of prayer and response. And we're going to ask Jesus to help us see him more clearly. See, because you and I can't do that on our own. We're kind of like that blind guy in Bethsaida. We can't open our own eyes and we can't give ourselves greater spiritual vision. Those are things Jesus has to do for us as a gift of his grace. And so I want to give us a simple prayer to pray today. Here it is. I'll throw it up here so you can see it. Jesus, open my eyes. Give me sight and help me to see you more clearly. I want to ask you to pray this, even if you're that person in the room who's known Jesus for like 50 years. Because here's the truth. Even though you've known him for such a long time, there are still things about him that you don't see clearly. And what you see in him and about him, it's probably barely scratching the surface of all that he is. And so I want you to pray. I would also say to you, if you're the skeptic in the room, you're that person who walked in and you're like, this is dumb and I just wish you'd quit talking. I don't believe any of this stuff. It's so ridiculous. Uh, I would dare you to pray this prayer. Like, what do you have to lose? If God isn't real and Jesus didn't do what he said he did, like, what do you have to lose by praying a prayer like this? Nothing, right? But what if you prayed it and Jesus actually answered it? What if you pray, okay, Jesus, if you're out there listening, you know I think this is dumb, but if you're out there listening, would you open my eyes? Would you give me sight? And would you help me to see you clearly? I want us to pray that together right now. So all over the room, let's just bow our heads, close our eyes. I'm going to ask our prayer team to come and to get in their places. And as they do, I want to speak to those of you who walked into the room today uh, without spiritual vision. Maybe you came in and you know you've been living in unbelief. Maybe you've been opposing Jesus knowingly, or maybe you just haven't known a lot about this Jesus stuff, and and so you've been opposing him unknowingly. But either way, you know you're that person who walked in today, and, and you haven't seen Jesus clearly, but after being here, it's almost like God has taken the blinders off of your eyes, and you're sitting there thinking right now, wow, that's who Jesus is. That's how he feels about people. That's how he loves. That's what he did to save my life. He gave up his own. So if you're that person who has seen Jesus today and you need Jesus to change your life, to give you hope for not only this life, but also an eternity, why don't you just tell him that in faith? Just say to him right now, Jesus, I finally see you today. I see you and I believe that you are who you claim to be. You're the son of God. And you're the Savior who laid your life down to pay for my sins. You're the Lord and King who rose from the dead to conquer death and hell for me. And Jesus, I see that now. And so I'm asking you, would you forgive me of my sins, past, present, and future? Take hold of my life and make me into the person you've created me to be. Jesus, I say yes to you. Listen, with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, I, I just want to ask you if you prayed that with me or something like it, right where you're sitting, would you do me a favor and acknowledge the fact that you made that decision by just lifting a hand? James, that's me. Saw Jesus clearly for the first time today. Just throw it up real high where we can see it. Our prayer team is going to come. Just keep it up. We see it in the middle. They're coming. Our prayer team is going to come and put a resource in your hand. And as soon as you receive it, you can put your hand down. Anybody else, James, that's me. 
saw Jesus clearly today and put my faith in him. Awesome. Listen, as we continue and as we get ready to close for the rest of you, why don't you just pray that, Jesus, will you open my eyes? I know I can't do it on my own. Jesus, I need you to give me greater spiritual vision so that I can see those aspects of who you are and what you've done even more clearly than I already see them. Jesus, would you give me sight? I know I can't give myself sight. You've got to do it. And so, Jesus, in your grace toward me, would you do that for me today? And, Jesus, would you help me to see you more clearly? God, I thank you today that 2,000 years ago, out of your great love for us, that you wrapped yourself in flesh and came to live among us so that we could see you clearly. And so, God, those things that we are missing or we continue to miss, God, would you bring them into the light and help us to see them? God, we love you, and we're so grateful for your love for us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.